Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Phil Craig. And I'm Andrew Loney. And together we aim to bring you the most scandalous stories and some of the most scandalous people in history. So thanks for joining us here on the Scandalmongers podcast. Good day, Andrew. Good day to you across the oceans. Uh, this is an international podcast. It is. I'm, I'm, I have to start by thanking Andrew. I'm here in Australia, and I made him get up really, really early. I don't think the butler has even been yet. Has he, has he <laughs> no. laid out your slippers? Has he got, ironed your copy of the Times? Has, well, I almost thought of, uh, you know, coming in the sort of uh, my pyjamas, but uh, there are standards to be upheld. There are standards to be upheld. You're quite right. Um, actually, do you know what? I want to start by reading you some of our latest reviews. I think this is my favourite part of doing the podcast. People are now writing in to say what they're doing while they're listening to us. <laughs> right. So Catherine from Oxfordshire says, it's my new favourite thing to listen to whilst doing the ironing. Very relaxing. Great, great. Well, I mean, you know, uh, I, I think that's uh, it's a good way of, of, of making a boring job more interesting. <laughs> I agree. So let us know what you're doing while you're listening to Andrew and I droning on. But, but actually, this is my favourite. Jane Carrow, our friend, uh, very much a friend of the pod- this podcast, a writer and broadcaster from Australia, uh, says, I love this podcast. It's a subversive view of history, which debunks myths and pulls down the pants of the posh and the powerful. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's actually on my obituary. <laughs> so, whose pants are we pulling down today, Andrew? Well, it's it's a mystery. It's one of the great unexplained mysteries. The files are closed now until two thousand and fifty-seven, a hundred years after it happened. Uh, it's been the subject of a very successful other podcast here in Britain. Uh, it's a subject I know a little bit about because it touches on Mountbatten. Uh, and I th- what I'm hoping is we're going to be able to probe and get a little bit more than is in the other podcast, which is a, a sort of eight-part series. So um, we're doing a podcast on a podcast? Well, we'll do a podcast on the mysterious disappearance of Commander Lionel Buster Crabbe, oh. uh, who was a diver who vanished uh, doing it on a spying operation. But I think it fits into our theme well, because it's also the story of a cover-up, and Though it was pretty embarrassing that the British should be uh, spying on the Russians, I think what is fascinating for us, particularly because of the 
concern about the cultural secrecy is that the government have, have basically, from day one, have tried to shut the story down. And one has to ask, why have they done that? So what do I need to know to get the best out of our upcoming interview? Well, uh, uh, we need to know the basic story of why Commander Crabbe was there, the, the historical context, it's the Cold War. Uh, this is a visit from Khrushchev and Bulgarin to um, Britain. And I think also there are lots of different theories about what happened to Crabbe, who disappeared on that day, uh, and some very plausible ones. I mean, it's very difficult to know where truth begins and, and the myths have begun to emerge. And I think what's clever about this podcast, both are, well, his, uh, Giles Milton's, is that he explores all the different um, options and either discredits them or, or, or thinks that they have some validity. And it's a very interesting aspect of what we as historians do, having to sort of probe stories to see if they stand up or not. Uh, and again, the mystery of history, because there are several very plausible things that could have happened to Crabbe, but only one actually did happen. Sounds absolutely riveting. Should we get to it? Yes, let's get there. Let's get there. So introducing Giles Milton in 54321. So I'm delighted to have Giles Milton talking about, I think, one of the great unexplained mysteries of the 20th century, which has been a very successful podcast. Uh, and I wonder, Giles, if you could tell us what the story really is about. The story is about a celebrated wartime diver called Lionel Buster Crab who'd had all sorts of uh, fabulous adventures in the war, great uh, tales of heroism. He was a celebrated figure in Britain uh, post-war. He'd been highly decorated, been given the George Medal. And then one day in April 1956, Lionel Crabbe goes on a diving mission in Portsmouth Harbour and is never seen again. And this is a, a huge, well, not only is it a great mystery, but it develops into a great nationwide scandal. What has happened to Lionel Buster Crab? No one knows. And it, this, this, the mystery spawns dozens of conspiracy theories, um, some plausible, some less plausible. And really, I think the reason why these conspiracy theories spin out of control is that when this story comes to the House of Commons, it, it, it's that big a story, you know, everyone's covering it, it's front page news, that when it comes to the House of Commons, and the Prime Minister, Anthony Eden, is asked to explain what on earth has happened to this incredibly famous wartime hero, he says it would not be in the public interest to disclose the circumstances in which Commander Crabbe um, met his, uh, is presumed to have met his death. This, of course, does not answer any any of the questions that people are answering. And, and, and there, this is really the starting point for this extraordinary mystery that remains a mystery to this day. And, um, of course, uh, the file, the crucial file that reveals the truth of what happened to, uh, to Buster Crabbe um, will not be released by the public, into the, uh, by the government, into the public domain until 2057. So How wonderful. During mystery. Well, and, Andrew knows a lot about files that people aren't allowed to see. I think that's that's for sure. So it's not really the story of a scandal, is it, Giles? It's the story of a cover-up of something, which, if it were known, might be might have been or still would be a scandal. Yeah, I think I think you know, in any in any void, in any vacuum, you'll get people trying to fill it with theories, and mm. and I think the press were incredibly frustrated at the time that no one would give them any answers from the prime minister downwards, and so they began to speculate, 
Um, and, you know, any little bit of snippet of gossip that sounded half plausible, um, they would put into the onto the front page of the newspapers. They also had a number of, um, you know, so-called eyewitnesses or people who'd been involved um, in the crab disappearance who started popping up and telling their stories. And it's very difficult to know how plausible, how true these stories are, um, how credible these witnesses are. And and that's what one of the things we tried to do in the podcast was to really go through all these individual theories, which, as I say, some were very plausible, and find out if there was any shred of truth to them. Well, I I have to theories. Sorry, what are the theories? Because, I mean, the the talk of him defecting, of being captured, of being shot at the time, of of just um, uh, being captured uh, uh, and then dying in, in, uh, as he's being interrogated. I mean, uh, as you investigated them, which, which sounded more plausible than others? Well, I think the most plausible one, and one that was certainly believed by um, his closest friends, his diving buddy even, uh, Sidney Knowles, and also by his family, is one of two theories. One that is he defected uh, to the Soviet Union, and the other is that he was captured by the KGB. Because I suppose we we ought to just set the background to to this diving mission. This is April 1956, and a big um, historic uh, event is about to take place in Portsmouth, and that is the arrival of Khrushchev and Bulganin. So the head of the uh, the two most important players in the Soviet Union are coming on an unprecedented uh, Cold War visit to Great Britain. This really is a big event, and it is absolutely vital for the government of the day that nothing goes wrong on this visit. You know, they, they, if this is Anthony Eden rolling out the red carpet. Um, he wants the complete reset of relations between Great Britain and the Soviet Union. He wants to be a bridge, if you like, between the Soviet Union and the uh, and the United States. He sees this this as an opportunity, really, for Britain to get back its place on the world stage. So. It's a very, um, you know, artfully managed visit. The two Soviet warships come into Portsmouth Harbour. They dock there and Khrushchev and Bulganin step down into the harbour and then are taken off to London where they meet Anthony Eden. They meet the Queen. They, they're given the absolute sort of red carpet treatment. So it's important that nothing goes wrong whatsoever. So when, um, you know, this di- this w- this incredibly celebrated diver disappears in Portsmouth Harbour at exactly the time when these two Soviet warships are there uh, anchored in the harbour. People begin to think, you know, put two and two together and think something fishy might be going on here. And 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 so that, that really explains the background as to how these two theories that he defected to the Soviet Union always captured uh, by KGB agents on board Khrushchev's vessel, they came into play. Um, and so those were two of the key uh, theories that we followed uh, throughout the course of the podcast. How did you research it? I mean, was was there new material? Were there new people you spoke to who hadn't spoken before? Yeah, we had um, a, a very good old friend of mine, a uh, Russian friend of mine, uh, Marsha, who, was, who really helped with our research uh, in Russia. And we knew of the existence of a video interview with a so-called former KGB agent who claimed uh, to have killed Lionel Crab underwater. He dived into. He knew that Crab was um, doing something fishy underneath the, the the Khrushchev's vessel. He was sent into the water and he knifed him, cut cut his um, throat, slit his throat open, and killed him in the water. We knew of the existence of this, and actually, Marsha rather brilliantly managed to lay her hands on this video. So we had this um, interview with him, and then we had to work out. Well, hold on a minute. 
is this guy actually telling the truth or not? And this is the problem, or one of the one of the great colourful sort of things about the story of Lionel Crabb is all these stories, and it, you have to work out are they actually true? You know, because often in cases like this, big celebrity sort of mysteries and everything, you get people jumping on the bandwagon and telling stories that, in fact, they've completely invented. So this chap, Edward Edward Koltsov, he was called, we had to work out if this story was plausible or not. Um, and that that forms one of the episodes um, in the podcast. But then there's the other theory, which was put about by Sidney Knowles, which was uh, Lionel Crabbe's diving buddy, who knew Lionel Crabbe better than anyone in the world. You know, these two had had fought the Second World War together. They'd done everything together. So they were really, really uh, were very, very close friends. He claimed that Lionel Crabbe had defected to the Soviet Union, that he was a communist sympathiser, always had been, that he was linked to all the Cambridge spies. He was very closely linked to Anthony Blunt um, and that uh, he, he defected. So that was another strand to, to, to be investigated. But I mean, a body was found 14 months later, but with the head and the hands cut off, which is rather mysterious. And then there was some speculation about whether this really was crap because they weren't identifying scars and things. I mean, what's your take on that? So this was a, yeah, this was, a, I mean, this comes towards the end of the podcast, and it's an absolutely fascinating story. You're right. Sort of 14 months later, after Crab's disappearance, a body is washed up, and it's like you say, it's headless and handless. Now, we're talking 1957 here. This is long before DNA profiling and everything. The only certain way to identify a body back then was by the teeth or by the fingerprints so if you want to uh, you know dispose of somebody uh, incognito as it were you remove the head and you remove the hands and it's almost impossible to identify that corpse so we we have this um this headless handless corpse which is fished out of chichester harbor not portsmouth harbor chichester harbor so down the coast 10 8 10 miles down the coast a fisherman, um, they're, they're, they're trawling for fish in Chichester Harbour and they pull out this grim, sort of gruesome mass of decomposing flesh, horrible thing, still in a wetsuit, minus its head, minus its hands. They, they, they bring it ashore, they call the police and then begins this inquest, which has to decide, is this or is this not uh, the corpse of Lionel Crabbe? And that in itself is an incredibly complex process. It involves um, the family are involved. And what's weird about this is one of the people brought in to identify this very hideous, very nasty sight is Margaret Crabbe, who's the ex-wife, the divorced wife of Lionel Crabbe. And she tells police that, yes, this is the body of Lionel Crabbe. And she tells her friends that, no, it wasn't the body of Lionel Crabbe. So uh, yet again, uh, Mm -hmm. there are lots of there's so many stories that don't quite add up. Um, And what we did... um, my producer Sarah Peters and I, we got one of the country's leading forensic pathologists to take us through the inquest because we had all the papers um, of the inquest. Take us through and work out whether this could or could not have been uh, the, the corpse of Lionel Crabbe. It should be said we had a, a remarkable discovery um, because there are not that many papers in the National Archives about the Lionel Crabbe mystery because they're still being held onto by the cabinet office. But we'd spoken to an investigative reporter on The Guardian, Rob Evans, and he said, look, there's always stuff out there. You just have to, you know, look, uh, think laterally, you know, uh, go to unexpected places and look for stuff, which we did. 
And one of those places was Chichester Public Record Office, where we didn't expect to find anything. But we did. We struck gold because we found the entire police report into the Lionel Crabbe affair that for some reason had never been transferred to the National Archives. And it had absolutely everything, all the witness statements, interviews, police interviews, um, the most grisly photographs of this rotting corpse which pulled out of Chichester Harbour. And so we had access to all this material, which was invaluable when we went to our forensic pathologist to uh, for him to guide us through how they would have tried to identify this corpse. And do you think it was him in the end? Are you not sure? So our um, our forensic pathologist, Richard Shepherd, he concluded um, through a, a lot of very skillful and um uh, <clears throat> you know expertise that it 99.9 percent was lionel crab wow but that's not the end of the mystery because the other unanswered question is how the hell did this corpse end up in chichester harbour because he went missing in port in, in portsmouth harbour so we called on the services of the country's leading forensic hydrologist <laughs> which is <laughs> didn't know there was one i didn't know that job existed <laughs> but um <laughs> professor carolyn roberts is um an absolute expert on how dead bodies move in water with a particular speciality and rivers estuaries and tidal sort of areas and she's solved numerous uh, crimes for the police working out you know if a body's washed up you know uh, point a where did it come from originally and so she studies currents tidal flows all sorts of stuff like that and she we had an absolutely fascinating day with her she was such a character she talked remarkably sort of um freely and matter-of-factly about you know decomposing bodies that she'd examined etc cetera, etc cetera. but she so she brought along all this incredible data about the flow of water between Portsmouth Harbour and Chichester Harbour, which, as I say, they're about eight miles apart. And she concluded that it was absolutely impossible, literally impossible, for Lionel Crabbe's corpse to have moved naturally from Portsmouth Harbour to Chichester Harbour. Part of the reason was to do with the tidal flows and everything, but also the water coming out of Chichester Harbour, the flow is a, a lot stronger because obviously there's rivers coming into Chichester Harbour. The outflow is much, much stronger than the inflow. Um, and so she concluded, particularly, it's all about the buoyancy of corpses. I mean, she got into this amazing detail, very grim detail, but absolutely fascinating about gases in the body, the buoyancy of the body. Of course, Lionel Crabbe was wearing uh, oxygen cylinders, which are heavy. Um, so yeah, her conclusion was, there's absolutely no way this body could have floated there naturally. And therefore, her conclusion was the body had to have been placed there. And then our next question was, by whom and why? Wow. So, you know, the mystery, at every step, the mystery sort of deepened. It well, was, can, can, it was, I, could I ask you one? Can I just take you back to the beginning? Sorry to jump in. Oh, by the way, I really should say to people listening, this podcast is brilliant. It's everything that ours isn't. It's really professionally made. It's got music, proper editing. It's totally smooth. And I'm really jealous. But no, it's a great and it has show. Andrew, and it has Andrew features. It, features it also has Andrew. That's so one good I feel, thing. <laughs> I, feel really, I feel really out of it. But no, it's it's, it's a really good, a really good listen. But I, you mentioned about the politics. You know, it's a big moment in the Cold War. Britain really wants it to go well. Eden is excited to have these top Soviets. So surely he wouldn't have authorized something as dangerous as sending down a diver to this ship. Do you think it could have been something that the leading people in government simply didn't know about? Or are there double and triple crosses going on here? Yes, okay. was it a rogue okay. operation with deniable agents? 
It's, it's a great question, and this really gets to the heart of it, that Eden had been absolutely insistent, and he told MI6 um, that there were to be no uh, dirty operations taking place. No, nothing is to, is to happen during the visit. This is The, the stakes are just too high. Um, and so, but clearly something did happen. And, and this led us to the conclusion um, that this was a rogue operation, absolutely uh, carried out without Eden's knowledge, which is why he was so furious when he discovered that it had, that there had been an operation had taken place. And so that begs the question, well, who on earth ordered this rogue operation? You know, where where should we be pointing the finger of blame uh, at this? So that was one strand um, that we, we looked into. There was another very interesting angle to this is that, um, well, Sarah, the producer and I found the journalist who covered this story in 1956. Amazingly, Peter Marshall was a young uh, journalist at the time, ran a news agency in Portsmouth. And he was covering this for pretty much all of the nationals at the time. A big story for him. And a big story being the arrival of Khrushchev and Bulganin, a story that got even bigger over the days that followed with Crabbe's disappearance. And he said right from the beginning, there is a mystery figure lurking in the background of this story um, and that uh, it is believed that this mystery figure was American and almost certainly belonged to this uh, was a CIA agent and so it became apparent from quite early on that actually this was quite probably a rogue operation or almost certainly a rogue operation undertaken by MI6 but um, but also with the input of the CIA um, now, the MI6, uh, they, you know, they would have hesitated anyway before trying an operation like this, uh, uh, where, when you've got, you know, Christoph and Bulgarin coming to Great Britain. You know, they're going off to meet the Queen, for heaven's sake. You don't want anything to ex- to blow up when this is going on. But the CIA, we spoke to a, a former spy, intelligence officer, who said, well, the CIA wouldn't give a damn about, you know, the Queen and, 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 and uh, the, the stakes for the British, if they wanted information about this Soviet ship, which is clearly what this operation is all about, this ship was equipped with new revolutionary state-of-the-art engines, and the British and Americans wanted to know more about these engines. Um, so, um, you know, if the CIA, if the Americans wanted this information, they would say, well, let's just do it anyway. And they would have encouraged MI6 to pull off a rogue operation without the knowledge of the authorities in Britain. Oh, that's so interesting. That's really cool. And, that, and that's why they use crab. But I mean, there's also a suggestion that Mountbatten may have known about it. I mean, he denied any knowledge, but in fact, his deputy uh, in the naval staff said that actually he he did know about it. Yes, I mean, we we are almost certain, and obviously your expertise was um, invaluable in in the podcast, Andrew, because uh, you know Lord Mountbatten probably better than anyone. Um, that it's we think it's almost certain that Mountbatten was involved. Like you say, uh, this was a man who'd been involved in special operations during the war. He was a man who uh, had torn up the rule book. He loved uh, maverick operations, dirty tricks, guerrilla sabotage, anything like that. This was this was Mountbatten's territory. And um, he was also head of the Navy, of course, at this point. So um, it's very likely that Mountbatten was actually behind this. Um, Always would be deniable. There was no paper trail. We we could find no paper trail whatsoever. And I know you you know the Mountbatten papers better than anyone else. You've never found anything. But how these things worked, you know, they worked um, 
sort of on the quiet. Uh, Mountbatten would have chatted to somebody in his gentleman's club in, in Pall Mall and given the nod to this. And then um, it would have gone to MI6. There were plenty of people in MI6 who were very prepared to carry off a, a rogue operation like this. And um, we point the finger of blame at Nicholas Elliott, um, who was uh, famous for... Um, you know, liking uh, uh, underhand operations. He almost certainly had a hand in this, in, in Lionel Crabbe's dive. And the choice of Lionel Crabbe as well um, is interesting. This had to be somebody, uh, it was an operation that had to be deniable and that they had to use somebody who could, could be deniable. Lionel Crabbe was uh, retired by 1956. He was off the official books. So uh, there was there could be no linkage between him and MI6. It was a sort of the ultimate denial, deniable operation. So, yeah, in, in the sort of hierarchy of things, we think uh, that it, Mountbatten uh, ordered the operation. He got Nicholas Elliott of MI6 to plan the operation. And Nicholas Elliott got Lionel Crabbe to undertake the operation. That's, and, that's and the way Crabbe, the British thought it worked. And Crabbe comes across in, in your account as somebody who's, who's kind of better days are behind him, really. You know, he'd had this rather glamorous war but it's sort of fallen on hard times. I mean, but, but was he in some senses wanting to get back into the game or was he being exploited perhaps for one final kind is of a, This is the great tragedy of the whole story, I think, is that um, Crabbe, as you say, by 1956, he was a vulnerable individual. So he his, his best days were definitely behind him. His wartime heroics, you know, were the thing of the past. Um, and his world revolved around his diving buddies in Portsmouth. He lived down there. These were his drinking mates. He was a heavy drinker, um, who was forever going to the pub and, you know, knocking back seven or eight pints of an evening. Um, he was, by 1956, he'd been retired from the Navy. And I think this was a terrible blow to lose that connection, uh, mm. which was his life, you know. He lived uh, the, with the, with these people. He loved that life. And by 1956, yeah, he was a broken man. He was a, he was virtually an alcoholic. He was a chain smoker. He was extremely unfit. He was absolutely the last person that should ever <laughs> have been sent on this highly sensitive and highly risky operation. It should be said, um, as we spoke to naval divers, um, uh, a very elderly one called Julian Commander Julian Malik, who was absolutely fascinating because he'd done a lot of diving in Portsmouth Harbour. He said it's an extremely treacherous place to dive because not only have you got these swirling tidal currents and everything, which make it very difficult to negotiate underwater, but also it's full of mud. You can't see a thing down there. It's freezing cold, um, and you know you have to be absolutely top of your game. So. For Nicholas Elliott, because Nicholas Elliott of MI6 needed someone deniable to do this operation, he chose Lionel Crabbe. But in doing so, he knew he was choosing a vulnerable, unfit, chain-smoking alcoholic who should never have gone down underwater. And the night before the dive, what did Lionel Crabbe do? He was back in Portsmouth, back with his old mates. He goes to the pub, drinks eight pints of beer, and he's almost certainly still drunk. Uh, when he goes out at dawn oh, God, on, the, on the 19th of April and undertakes this dive. It's really, it's a tragic story, really. Because he goes with someone else, but the, the, someone else remains, you know, uh, um, above water while he goes down, doesn't he? Um, yes, I, I knew very little about sort of diving. I've never di been diving myself. So when we were interviewed, in fact, the very first interview we did was with Commander Julian Malik, who I met by chance, this Royal Navy diver. And... I was talking to him because I'd long been fascinated by the story of Lionel Crabbe, and I'd actually written about it many years ago. I did a 
a book called Fascinating Footnotes from History. And it was just little snippets of curious stories. And I included the mystery of Lionel Crabbe, but I could never really find out anything more about it. And I was at a dinner and I found myself sitting next to Commander Julian Malik. And uh, he told me he was an ex-Royal Navy diver based in Portsmouth. And I said, you don't by any chance know about the Lionel Crabbe mystery, do you? And he said, well, actually, yes, I do, because I knew Frankie Franklin. Frankie Franklin was Lionel Crabbe's diving buddy, because when you go diving, there's always two people. There's generally one who goes underwater and one who stays on the surface. And that morning, when Lionel Crabbe slipped into the water to go diving uh, underneath Khrushchev's vessel, Frankie Franklin is on the surface monitoring this dive, timing it. He knows this is primitive diving. You know, this is 1956. The oxygen tanks were 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 small. You had very limited time underwater. Lionel Crabbe has precisely one hour to carry out this mission. If he's not back after one hour, something seriously bad has happened to him. So Frankie Franklin described to the chap I met, Julian Malik, he described being on the surface, looking at his watch, 50 minutes, 55 minutes, no sign of Lionel Crabbe, 57, 58 minutes. He's beginning to get really worried. And then the hour passes and he realizes, you know, but after an hour and five, hour and 10 minutes, that Lionel Crabbe is not coming back. And this is the point at which really all, all hell breaks loose because Frankie Franklin has to go back to his base, the Royal Navy base in Portsmouth and tell his commanders, Lionel Crabbe has just undertaken a top secret mission, rogue mission, and he's gone missing. And it's like this sort of you could almost feel the sense of dread as this story. Then it goes up to Whitehall, it goes to the Admiralty and everyone was thinking, oh, my God, this is very bad news indeed, because this is a celebrated, uh, you know, wartime hero who's gone missing. It's going to be a big news story. And it was. And as we when we first started, you know, I talked about Anthony Eden making this speech in the House of Commons, which which does not shut down the story. It opens up the story. So before you know it, you have this as front page news on, on you know, in all the newspapers. Because they went in and they ripped off the, the, the sort of visitor's book or the, the hotel register, didn't they? Which, of course, raised more suspicions. It was a sort of cack-handed cover up, really. Um it's it's extraordinarily inept, and it does make you wonder how you know uh, how good MI6 actually are or, or were in those days. Anyway, because what happened is that that um, Lionel Crabbe came down to Portsmouth, and he obviously needed somewhere to stay, so he stayed in a place called the Sallyport Hotel, and he checked in with another person. This is the mystery American uh, called Bernard Smith, and bizarrely. This is extraordinary, actually. They both wrote their actual names into the visitor's book. Um, and so when Lionel Crabbe went missing, Peter Marshall, the journal, the 90-year-old journalist we interviewed, um, was sent down there. But the Times got, got wind of this story quite early on. And the Times said to Peter Marshall, can you go down to the Sallyport Hotel, go and check the visitor's book, see what's in there? So um, Peter Marshall uh, goes down, he looks in the visitor's book, and he sees this page with the names Lionel Crabbe and Bernard Smith written on the page in the visitor's book. He goes back to his offices, phones the Times and says, yeah, yeah, they're, they're, their names are there. Lionel Crabbe's name is there with another chap called Bernard Smith. And the Times correspondent says, get back down there. Take a photographer back down there. We need a photo of that page of the visitor's book um, saying that Lionel Crabbe was staying there that night. So Peter Marshall he gets a photographer. He rushes back to the Sallyport Hotel, uh, goes into the uh, you know hotel entrance, gets a visitor's book, 
opens it up to take the photo and the page is missing. It's been torn out. Oh, wow. um, it's been torn out by a local police officer who actually, this is what's the most extraordinary thing, leaves a note saying, I have torn out, I, Jack Jack Lamport, have torn out this page um, on the orders of X, you know. And, and so, which is, I mean... You, you can't really make that up. It's just it's extraordinary, basically. Um, and so, you know, that at that point as well, uh, you know, that's that's another point at which the story, you know, takes off, uh, takes another angle as well. And it happens that the the Times journalist who was so interested in this story is actually writing the wartime biography of Lionel Crabbe. So he knows Lionel Crabbe very well. And um, he, re- he really sort of um, leads the story, the reporting for the Times. And was there anything in the States? I mean, if there was a CIA connection, there may have been papers there or in, in Crest, which is the CIA uh, archive. Yeah, I tried to uh, I tried to get information from the States. There is stuff in the archives, but it's not accessible. I tried to trace uh, former CIA officers from the 1950s in the hope there'd be someone alive um, and who might be prepared to talk. I put adverts in there. You know, they, they have a lo- local, uh, uh, you, you know, that you actually saw, yes, saw it in, Andrew. in intelligence <laughs> magazines, which is um, a great way of getting stuff. Yes. Unfortunately, no one, no one uh, answered or responded to that. And, um, and I think, yeah, I think this, it's absolutely intriguing, the CIA angle and the intelligence officer now retired that we interviewed Michael Smith, who's an actually, actually is an expert on links between MI6 and CIA and has just written a book about it. Um, he said to us, uh, it was very likely that MI6 and CIA would have been working together. They worked together closely, particularly in the mid to late fifties. Um, so it was very, very uh, plausible and credible that this was a joint operation. And I mean, you yeah. talk about the body disappearing for for a year. Uh, I mean, you you do have some very interesting material on on the fact that it may have been taken to an MI6 training centre. Yeah, so just outside um, Portsmouth Harbour, on the coast, uh, on the coastal uh, front, there is a top secret base called Fort Moncton. And Fort Moncton, if you try to approach it from the land side, you can't get anywhere near the place. It's surrounded by, you know, endless barbed wire fences and all sorts of defences, CCTV cameras, absolutely everywhere. But Sarah and I wanted to get near this place and try and find out more about it, because whenever we talk to people, local people in Portsmouth, they said, oh, there's always been rumours of a connection with Fort Moncton. So we took a boat out um, and we got as near as we could from the sea to, to look at Fort Moncton. And it's an extraordinary place. It is bristling with barbed wire, with security fences, you know, from, from the sea as well. There's a there's an observation tower. And the 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 owner of the boat, the captain who took us out there, he said, oh, look, they're up there right now. They're watching us. They want to know what we're doing here. He said, we can't get any closer than 50 meters from the shoreline. And they're watching us right now through binoculars. They want to know what we're doing here. Anyway, we did a bit of digging into this uh, Fort Moncton, and it turns out it is an MI6 uh, training establishment. And indeed, um, what we discovered, um, and which is in the podcast, is that Lionel Crabbe's corpse was indeed recovered by MI6 divers and was taken to MI uh, to, to, to Fort Moncton. And we have the most extraordinary interview in the last episode. Um, I probably shouldn't give too much away, really, but um, but with this 97 year old um, lady called Mary Julie, who had a, a very very interesting story and um and, and evidence um that she told us as, as to what happened 
And you think it was, was for, it was there for a year before it was then somehow relocated to Chichester? Yeah, but why why do that? And why cut off head and, and uh, I mean, why not make it identifiable? Why why not just dispose of the body? Why why put it back in the water? Okay, so this is another example of um, the ineptitude of MI6. We believe that they wanted it to be discovered, and they wanted the identity to be, to, to be known. They wanted to shut the story down uh, eventually. They had to wait for this whole thing to die down. They had to wait for Khrushchev to go back to Ru- the Soviet Union. Mm. Um, but eventually they wanted to release the body. The body would be discovered, and it would be sort of case closed. So uh, they, we believe uh, that they held the body and eventually released it into Chichester Harbour. But unfortunately, um, and this is, we really had a lot of um, help and guidance here from our forensic pathologist, Richard, Dr. Richard Shepard. Lionel Crabbe was wearing a rubber wetsuit, but it had a gap between the headpiece and the body piece. And Richard Shepard said, anybody that's in the sea for that long, um, it will get attacked by shrimps and, and crabs <laughs> and aquatic creatures. And they will attack anywhere where, the, where the, there's a gap between the rubber. I mean, he's seen this happen in the past, you know. So the natural place for these aquatic animals to start nibbling away at the flesh is the gap between the neck where the, where the, the headpiece met the body piece. which was, So there was a gap at the neckline. And there was also a gap at the wrists. Uh, where the gloves met the uh, the main part of the bodysuit, and so he said it was um, it was actually not that surprising that a body that's been in the water for that long um, actually would lose its head and hand. That, that's the natural weakness. It's where the the predators would get in uh, and nibble away. And it should be said that there is actually um, we didn't put this in the podcast because it was quite complicated and it, it, already it's a complicated story. So we had to be quite careful about um, editing this story down to make it you know manageable for the listener. But in fact, the body ha- uh, the body had been found some month some months earlier by another fisherman who had pulled it out of the water. And as he pulled it out, the head had fallen off. So, um, and, and it slipped back into the water. And all he got uh, actually was the lead weights, which which came away from the, from, the, uh, from the body. And those lead weights were exactly the weights that Lionel Crabbe was wearing on the day of his, of, his, of his dive in Portsmouth Harbour. And why put it in Chichester Harbour? Why not take it back to Portsmouth? Oh, because they definitely did not want Crab's disappearance to be associated with Portsmouth. This was the big, this was a highly embarrassing incident. You know, the governments had to apologise to the Soviet authorities, um, etc. They they didn't want the uh, any association between Lionel Crab and Khrushchev's visit. So it's much easier. They, they'd already put out a cover story that Lionel Crab um, drowned while doing te- Royal Navy tests in Stokes Bay. So, uh, you know, another place which is not Portsmouth Harbour. So they claimed, well, he, he drowned in Stokes Bay and the body was then washed into Chichester Harbour, which, you know, um, in the 1950s, you know, the, the science of uh, forensic hydrology didn't exist. Um, so really there was, it was, Sort of no one was ever going to question this. It was only natural that his body would have, you know, washed up eventually in Chichester Harbour. What um, those MI6 operatives didn't reckon on is that, you know, in 2023, we have incredible science surrounding the movement of corpses in water. And we have people like uh, Professor Carolyn Roberts, who was able to uh, say to us without a shadow of a doubt that this body could not have moved um, naturally. And I have to say, um, only yesterday, one of one of the great interviewees we had on the podcast, one of my favourite, was Kerry McKinnon. Kerry McKinnon lived in Chichester, and he was a young boy at the time, and his family had a pleasure yacht. 
And they were out uh, pleasure yachting in Chichester Harbour uh, on the day when, well, when they're having their lunch on this yacht and suddenly they hear a helicopter. This is very rare in the, in the 1950s for a helicopter to fly overhead. And they think, what the hell's going on? You know, sudden commotion and there seems to be lots of boats and everything. And actually, Kerry McKinnon was witness to the corpse being pulled out of the water. So he was actually there on that day. So he anyway, he made a fascinating uh uh, interview, um, and he remembered the day very well. And he actually had the the, the visitors' book from his fam- the family yacht, which they recorded a headless frogman being pulled from the from Chichester Harbour. Anyway, I spoke to him yesterday because it was quite. Uh, he wanted to. He had a few other things to tell us. And he'd been with, he'd worked with the Coast Guard for, for many years and all his friends are knocking around in the Coast Guard, you, you search and rescue. And so um, they'd all been listening to the podcast and they have all this monitoring equipment as well about bodies uh, moving in, in water because you know, that's what they're doing, search and rescue. And so they ran all the data through their programs to see if Crab's body could have been washed either from Portsmouth Harbour or from Stokes Bay into Chichester Harbour. And all their monitoring also showed, like our expert, Carolyn Roberts, that it was absolutely impossible for the corpse to have wow. washed their Gosh, okay, I Roberts. We have three minutes left, just to say, and I want to ask one question, which you may not want to answer, because I know you're holding on for the end of your podcast. So, But you must expect the question, which is, you know, your best guess, an accident, did somebody really cut his throat? What do you actually think of? But perhaps we'll never know until these documents are released. What is fascinating about this story is it's full of unreliable witnesses. Um, and so we, one by one, we sort of go through what appear on the surface to be very credible uh, stories. And with the help of our experts, we basically uh, take uh, many of these stories to pieces the truth about Lionel Crab, I, I mean, I can reveal it. That, uh, uh, what we believe is he he drowned while drunk, but that's not really the end of the story because the story is really about um, uh, the cover up, uh, what really happened, who was really involved, and of course, where where Andrew was so uh, great in the podcast was talking about why the government will not release the uh, Lionel Crab papers until 2057. This is absolutely extraordinary. I put in freedom of information requests to the cabinet office who are, they admitted they have the file and they kept posting, they they kept brushing me off. They're saying, we need more time to consider. We need more time. I'm sure, Andrew, you've, you've been down this route many, many times. They just basically are blocking and blocking and blocking. And eventually, to my surprise, I did get an answer. They said, we will not release this file on grounds of national security, which is clearly completely absurd this is something that happened in 1956 pretty much everyone is dead um and that led us to assume uh that really this almost certainly involved somebody a, a very considerable figure and the obvious person lord mountbatten lord mountbatten of course very very close to prince charles and now king charles um and it's embarrassing for the royal family and anything that touches on the royal family, that has a whiff of scandal about it, they'll simply shut that file away and you're never going to see it. Wow. Well, what a story. And thank you for sharing it. One final question, Andrew. We've got a minute. Well, I mean, this is also a wider story about the culture of secrecy. I mean, what what, what is the future for historians if, if things are going to be blocked like this? What can we do? It's very, very worrying. And I know you've been a a champion, a crusader. um, And, you know, I take my hat off to you because it's very worrying. Uh, The culture of secrecy in this country is uh, is 
it's getting worse and worse. This current government is absolutely notorious for, um, you know, withholding documents. And it makes the work for people like uh, Andrew and I, historians, write, you know, researching and writing books on sensitive subjects. It makes our job extremely difficult. There has to be a complete change. Much more um, documentation has to be placed into the public domain. Well, amen to that. And um, thank, you for, that. thank you for the lesson in making proper podcasts. Yeah. Uh, and a great investigation, a really Indeed. interesting. It'd be fascinating to well, see what emerges after the podcast, which I hear is in the top top ten. It's been doing very well. Oh, of course, all down to your contribution, Andrew. Uh, well, yeah, that, no, now you need to do it for us, Andrew. Brilliant. Subject. Thank you. See Thanks you, Charles. Bye. Bye. Okay. Thank you for listening to the Scandalmongers podcast. This has been a podcast world production. You can get in contact with our show by emailing team at podcastworld.org, placing Scandalmongers in the heading, or via our social media links within the show's bio. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.